Galatians 3. So just quickly, um, if you read religions, and I really recommend it, it's a good discipline. They agree on some major things. They agree on something like sin, uh, that something has gone wrong. There's a problem. The potential of humanity has somehow been broken. It's not where it's supposed to be, right? So there's a group that had come into the churches of Galatia. They're called Judaizers, and they're working off this idea. Things are broken. You're not what you should be. And so they know as, long, as well as all religions know this, you need some kind of righteousness that gets you back with God. Call it whatever you want. The easiest one is just you gotta be right with God. And then they have different ways by which they'll say you get right with God. So Islam has five pillars that you march out these five pillars and that gets you right with God. Buddhism has their four truths and their eightfold noble path that brings you to nirvana, righteousness, the right state, if you would. Um, Hinduism has you bathe in the Ganges, you make sacrifice to these gods, you follow the Bhagavad Gita. They all have their methods to get you back right with God. So what had happened in Galatia was the Judaizers had come back in and they'd said, Jesus is great, but if you wanna be part of the family of Abraham, which is really the way Galatians is framed, if you wanna be actually part of the family of Abraham, you have to be born into the family or we have this surgery for you called circumcision and keep the Torah and that will make you part of the family. You'll be in, you'll be adopted, okay? So in chapter three, Paul kind of attacks this with these five rhetorical questions we covered last time I was here. And then he ends by saying in verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, verse six. Abraham, amen God. And he got this thing that every religion is looking for righteousness with God, just by amening God. Now, was Abraham a good guy or a bad guy? Yes, is the easiest answer, right? It's complicated. He's a complicated individual. And we looked at him a year and a half ago, very complicated. So he's lifted up as the example and he's going to be what Paul shows, displays as the right path to righteousness. So we'll pick it up in verse seven. Knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. Does scripture prophesy? Sure appears right here. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed, Genesis 12. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I call this little section family ties. So he gives these five questions. And what he does right here is he starts to answer a couple of them. One of the five questions is, how do you get saved? What's the process by which we, to use the terms of Galatians, where we become sons of Abraham, we become family. How do we get into Abraham's family? And the answer in verses seven through nine, it's faith. It's not your DNA, the family you're born to, or what you do, circumcision. It's faith. And in verse eight, it's a fascinating verse because it says scripture preaches the gospel. How amazing is that? You want the best preacher in the world? You're holding it right in your hand. This preaches the gospel. It's, it's as if it's alive, Hebrews 4.12. That the Bible is quick, it's living, it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to sort out in your own heart, right? So when you realize that, that that's what the Bible is, our job is to humbly meditate in it, especially in community. Because when you humbly meditate by yourself, you can get really weird. And people that do that all the time. We're supposed to be humbly meditating in a community of people that we say, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what does this seem to you? And when you do it in community, mm, it's powerful. And it says in verse eight that the scripture preached the gospel. What gospel did it preach? In you shall all the nations be blessed. Have you ever heard that said? If someone said, hey, let me share with you the gospel. Have you ever heard anybody go back to Genesis 12? I haven't, right? Usually we go to 1 Corinthians 15, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the good news. But it uses the same word here for gospel, evangelum. And it says all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. That's the gospel, that's amazing to me. So Tuesday, yesterday, twice this happened to me. We talked about what the Bible means. So we have an elders meeting from six to eight. And we got to talking about different ways that people interpret the Bible. One of them is called trajectory hermeneutics. And what that means is the Bible, if you start reading it from Genesis through Revelation, sets a trajectory of thought. And we are supposed to say, okay, well, the trajectory stopped somewhere in Revelation here or whatever it is, and we can extrapolate out where it would be today. It's called trajectory hermeneutics. And I said, that's incorrect. It's wrong. It's the wrong way to look at the Bible. And then a couple hours after that, I had this meeting with the Titus two gals and this wonderful mom, and we were talking through some issues. And then she said, I was reading during this really hard time of my life, and I read Isaiah 45. And at the end of Isaiah 45, there's this text that talked and it just felt like it was just for me. And she said, how do I know when I read the Bible if a verse is for me? Which is a great question. 
And so I went to that text and I read it and it's a messianic text. It's speaking of, it's prophetically speaking of Jesus. And so in both those instances, I said, here's the thing you have to know about the Bible. If you're ever gonna get it right, you have to know this about scripture. It has one purpose. You know what that one purpose is? Jesus. The Romans 10, four says, he is the teleos, where we get our word telescope. He's the teleos of the law. That everything that was in the first five books of the Bible, it was actually a telescope by which you could see through and eventually get to Jesus. Jesus talks to the Pharisees who knew the Bible. Many people believe to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Like we can't read the first five books of the Bible. We can't pronounce the names and numbers. We can't do it. They would memorize it. And this is what he said to them. It's John 5, 38. You search the scriptures in vain because you don't know. They testify of me. I'm the point. And so what I shared with her was this, that text you're reading is actually about Jesus. But here's how you make it your own. What you say is, that is so amazing and so incredible and so brilliant. I want that to be true of me. So I need to make Jesus, you my tell us so that I'm following you and keeping my eyes fixed on you, learning about you. So the things that are prophesied about you, they start to become true about me. That's how you own scripture. I wanna be like you. I wanna go for it with you. And that's what happens, okay? So this amazing little verse says this, Abraham was saved by the gospel. How long did Abraham live before Jesus? 2,000 years. So how in the world is Abraham saved by the gospel 2,000 years before Jesus? Well, Jesus puts it like this. It's John chapter eight, verse 54. He said, Abraham wanted to see my day. And when he did, he rejoiced. What Jesus said is, Abraham had faith in the promise of this gospel. And he put his faith in the promise of this coming gospel and he got saved on credit. And then on Calvary, it was paid in full. And that's how every Old Testament saint got saved. They had an inkling, some understanding of the good news it preached in Genesis 12. They had an inkling of it and they put their faith in it on credit. And then when Jesus came and paid it in full, they became saints just like you and me. Here's the mistake we make. We look at Abraham and we make him into this guy that's way up here father of the faith, receiver of the covenants. And so we make him into something that he's not, a hero of the faith. He is a hero of the faith. And that's why I asked in the beginning, was Abraham good or bad? Because I think we elevate people in the Bible too high and the, the Bible is so honest about people, is it not? It just describes actually how they are. It's unlike any other holy book because most holy books make their people Holy, the Bible does not do that, right? Read Abraham's story again. What did he do to his wife? In the very first chapter, we get introduced to him. Like it's right out of the bat. God makes his promise to him, Genesis 12. And then he takes off, goes down to Egypt. And he's like, hey, you're really pretty. And if Pharaoh sees how pretty you are, he's gonna kill me. So why don't you just go sleep with Pharaoh to save my life? 
That's what he does to his wife. He doesn't do it just one time though. In Genesis 20, he does the exact same thing. And this time he says to Abimelech, this has been my habit whenever we go into places where I'm afraid. So every kind of place that Abraham went in that he was afraid of, you need to say you're my sister and go into the harem of this dude to protect me. You're like, man, that does not seem like a hero of the faith, does it? He doesn't seem like that great of a guy. Are you kidding me? You know, you know he never lived that down. Every time they would have an argument, all Sarah had to do would be like, remember Pharaoh? I mean, come on. Does not matter what I've done. So, so we elevate these guys way up. In fact, it calls him here a man of faith. Was he a man of faith? Yes. But right after he makes that declaration, Genesis 15, 6, amening God, your descendants, even though you're old and your wife is old and you have no kids, I'm going to give you more kids than the stars of the sky. Amen. The next chapter, what does he do? Takes this woman named Hagar and does it on his own. He falls out of the faith and goes into works of the flesh. It's amazing to me. It's so important for, I think, all of us to have almost like a Genesis 12, Genesis 16, Genesis 20 in our own lives, where we write down how we have royally blown it. It's very good for us to remember because I think here's what happens. When you first get saved, there's like this idea, if I can just stop cussing and drinking, I'll be good. Remember that time? I don't know if you, what your, your background is, but it's like, you see these like big massive problems and you're like, if I can just stop these two things or these three things, man, I'm good. And you stop those things and it's God like, okay, you're good, I'm done with you. Never. God's like, Matt, you're so wrong. We got about a hundred other things to work on after we're done with those two things. And God keeps processing us and moving us, right? And that's what we see with Abraham, same thing. Hey man, great declaration of faith, but that didn't mean he was finished. He's still moving and processing and going forward. And I would guess in this room, Right now, there are people that have all kinds of struggles, sexual struggles, greed struggles, drug struggles, you name it. And so we have to ask like Abraham, how do, we, how do we move forward? Okay, great. I've been brought into the family of faith, but how do I move forward as a man of faith or a woman of faith? Well, that's the next verse. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law, are under a curse, for it is written. These guys, remember, were moving back from faith in Jesus to stuff that they were doing, law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through 
faith. So family ties, verses seven, eight, and nine. And then I just called 10 through 14 family lives. How do we live this thing out? Do we get saved by Jesus? And then is it up to us at that point? Do we get his righteousness? And then once we get Christ's righteousness, then it's back to the law, back to doing stuff, back, is that what it is? So in order to be changed by our, our cussing or our lying or our greed or our unfaithfulness, whatever it is, that we gotta turn back into ourselves and be like, okay, I gotta figure out how to do this, how to change myself. Is that what happens to us? Because that's a lot of people, right? We think it's like a, okay, Jesus starts it and then we have to finish it. So is it faith or law? So what Paul is now arguing very brilliantly is he says, if you wanna live in the, under the law, you're gonna be cursed. And here's why. He says it a couple different ways. You gotta do it all. The law is pass or fail. That's all it is. Either you pass or you fail. That's all there is. It's not great on a curve. There's no excuses. It reminds me, the law reminds me of my junior year at Oregon State University, a writing class I had to take. So I'm an engineer. And when I think about writing classes, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna be in there with a bunch of English majors and people that don't know what they're doing, all right? So I, I don't really want to take it. So I go in first day and the professor, she says this, there's a thousand points possible in this class. If you get 900 to a thousand points, you get an A. If you get 800 to 899 points, you get a B. If you get 700 to 799 points, you get a C on down. So she made it really clear. So I look at the syllabus and I realize, you know what? I can probably get an A here, no problem, without doing any homework. So that's what I did. End of the term. I had 895 points. One half of a percent away from an A. So I just assumed she's gonna give it to me. Well, get my report card, B. So I went in and I talked to her. I'm like, are you kidding me? How unfair is this? You're giving me the same grade as someone that got 95 points less than me. That is unfair. And she just looked at me, she goes, were you here the first day of class? I said, yes, I was. Did you hear what I said when I said, if you get 900 to 1,000 points, you get an A? I said, yes, I did. Did you get 900 to 1,000 points? I said, no, I did not. She said, you get a B. I'm like, oh, go ahead and change it to a C. I don't even care. I almost committed the unforgivable sin right then and transferred to become an organ duck. That's how mad I was. <laughs> That's the law. It's unbending. This is the standard and you do it exactly or else you're done. It curses you because no one can do it. The law was set up to show you and me that we cannot do it. And James 2.10 just puts it like this. If you've broken one of the law, you're a lawbreaker, period. There's no like it was a little law, it wasn't that big of a, nope. It's either you are not a lawbreaker, pass, or you are a lawbreaker, fail. And it curses you. It's going to curse you, right? So here's the way I look at the law. The law is like an MRI machine that you get shoved into and it scans you and says you have a tumor. But can the MRI machine do anything about that tumor? Mm -mm. 
It just identifies the problem. It identifies you're broken. It identifies you're stupid. It, that's what it identifies. You're broken and messed up, right? You shouldn't have smoked cigarettes, whatever it was. Maybe you didn't do anything. You're broken. You're just broken because the world's broken, whatever it is. So that's all it does. It identifies it and then, okay, good luck with that. MRI machine has done its job. That's the law. The law is there to tell you and me that we're lawbreakers and that's it. And once it's done, it's done, right? We should, when we read the law, and I've been reading it recently, really liking it, it just causes me to be super humble. When I think about the holy, unbelievable, high level that God expects of you and me and how I fail to meet that, it makes me a really humble guy, really humble. There are lots of things that make me really humble. I was just reflecting on this today. Um, Someone reminded me of this. Probably nobody was here at that time, but the very first time I did communion at Edgewater, I did it backwards. So instead of doing like Jesus did, the bread and the cup, I did the cup and the bread. And I didn't even know I had done it backwards. I walked off the stage right there and this lady, this elder lady just came over. She beelined for me. She's like, hey, could I talk to you for a second? I said, oh, sure, yeah, yeah. She goes, why did you do communion backwards? And I went, oh my goodness. I can't believe I just did that. I mean, what do you say at that point? I know better than Jesus, you know, it's actually supposed to be done this way. No, right? It's why we went to those little cups that are like, that all in one, you know, you peel off the tab and you get the little piece of styrofoam and you eat it. And you peel off the other part, it's, it's literally juice from 32 AD and you try to drink it. Cause you can't do it wrong. I'm like, well, that'll help me. It's so good to just remember how we don't meet the standard. And then I'm not going back to that. The law curses me. So why would I go back to that? So here's what Paul says. That's what's gonna happen. The law's just gonna curse you. No one, it says, is justified before God by the law, verse 11. You cannot earn your way to a righteous standing before God. And then he quotes this very, very classic line. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. That's an underliner. Because it didn't say the just or the righteous shall get saved by faith. What did it say? You're gonna live. That we're called into a life of faith. We're not just called to be saved by faith. We're called to live by faith. This little phrase from the book of Habakkuk is picked up and is quoted three times in Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews. And each one of those books centers on something different. Romans centers in on being just, being righteous. Galatians centers in on living it. And then Hebrews centers in on faith. Brilliant, brilliant. It's not, hey, I had faith in Jesus to save me and now I gotta get my life straightened out. Uh Uh-uh. It's I gotta keep living by faith. So what does that look like? Well, it's right here in verses 13 and 14. So it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse, became a curse, And then it says, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessings of Abraham, the promise of the spirit, they come through faith. That's where they come from. Not through my works, not through law, not through promises to be better. They come through faith. So it says that Jesus became a curse. Now, what does that mean? Did he lie? Did he steal? No. Here's what it means. When you, when you back up and you go to the cross, that there's something that happens on the cross that to me is, it's just, it's supposed to explain a lot to us, I think, about these things. So Jesus is crucified and there's a guy crucified next to him. He's a lawbreaker. He's an admitted lawbreaker, right? He admits it. Hey, you and me, the other guy on the other side, we deserve this punishment. We're lawbreakers. This guy does not. And then what does he say? He says, hey, I can tell there's something special about you. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Hey, buddy, I am so busy right now. I'm paying for the sins of the whole world. I'm redeeming the cosmos. Are you kidding me? You are selfish and so, I mean, are you kidding, right? Do you see what I'm going through right here? Man, I'm gonna descend into hell to take on dark powers right after this. Give me a break. Now, what does Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. What did that guy do to deserve anything? Nothing. He just said, I know you're the king. And would you remember me? He put his faith in the king. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He couldn't do anything. See, being a curse means this. Jesus was treated like I should be treated so that I could be treated like he deserves to be treated. He was cursed for my law-breaking ways so I could be blessed for his obedience. That's what it means. So in 2 Corinthians 1.20, there's this great verse. And Paul says this. He says, all the promises, Old Testament promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That if you're reading through the Old Testament, you see these glorious promises and you're like, whoa, guess what? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's yes and amen. That's a radical change because the law said this over and over. If you do this, then God will do that. The promises were based on my performance, right? You can just look at Leviticus 18.5. If you'll keep all these rules, I will bless you. But then in verse six down, it just starts saying, if you don't, I'm gonna curse you. I'm gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna have all these problems. It's if then. New Testament, right here, that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham come. That we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So it's this. It's every promise God makes in the Old Testament meets every need you and I have in Christ Jesus. Do you need forgiveness? Done in Jesus Christ. Do you need grace? Abundantly in Jesus Christ. Do you need mercy? Yes, in Jesus Christ. Do you need purpose? Absolutely in Jesus Christ. Do you need power? 
overflowing in Jesus Christ? Do you need joy exceedingly in Jesus Christ? Do you need abilities, talents given by Jesus Christ? Do you need love? Yes, secured by Jesus Christ. Do you need acceptance? 100% adoption because of Jesus Christ. It's yes and amen. Every promise of the Old Testament meets every need we have in Jesus Christ. Now, if we are Pentecostal, we get excited. The least you can do is smile. <laughs> That's what this is saying. In you, in Jesus, all the Abrahamic blessings come to you and me. By faith, we get the promise. So what happens from here on, and it's too big for me to tackle, from verse 15 through verse 29, it's gonna then say, then why did we have this long thing with the law? What, what's the purpose of all this law stuff? And it's brilliant. But let me make two applications and they'll be done. And you can go home and eat your kids' Halloween candy. So number one, here's what this means for us. We have to bankrupt the business model we have with God. Because in all of us is this kind of way that we want to deal with God. Okay, God, and we may not even say it, but it's in us. If I'll quit doing these things, then God, would you do this for me? If I'll just stop chewing or cussing or speeding, or if I'll give some money to the church, then God, you owe me. We all do that. Every single one of us. But what this text is saying is, that's not it. And what I found in counseling people is it becomes a recipe for bitterness because you'll end up saying, God failed me. I made a bargain with God and I came through on my side and God failed me. And it's a bummer. There has to be a better way. It's like this maybe. Um, if you're a young lady, imagine some guy shows interest in you and you have a big trust fund. And this guy's showing interest and he is all doing everything and it seems like, wow, man, that's awesome. And then you find out the trust fund, it was invested in Enron and it's gone. And you're like, oh, honey, it's so sad. I lost all my money. And then he just disappears on you. How would you feel? Used, right? I think that's what people sometimes do to God. They, they see the trust fund and they're like, what do I need to get the blessings of God? Well, I'm gonna do all these things and make it seem like, oh, okay, right? All right, yeah, yeah. And you're using God, but God knows it. That's not how we're supposed to be. We have to bankrupt that model. And here's how I think you do it. Here's, here's the way that I'm finding it works. How you control that in us. And I call it the covenant of works. It's in every single one of us. It's the baseline that we relate to the whole world. It's the baseline, how we relate to people, how we relate to our job, how we relate to people, how we relate to God, covenant of works. If I do this, then you'll do that. We have to bankrupt that. Now, how do we do that? I think we get a little key in this great story from Isaiah. So in Isaiah six, if you read the first five chapters, Isaiah's kind of unplugged. He's kind of like brutal. He's covenant of works. You're not doing it right, rah, 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 rah. Then something happens in chapter six. He all of a sudden is in the temple and God shows up. 
and the pillars shake and the place is erupting. And then there are these beings that come around God and they're called seraphim. In the Hebrew, that literally means the burning ones. And they're on fire and they're always in God's presence. And they eternally sing what song? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they have eyes all over. And it's like they glance something at God and they see a new aspect of God and they just cover themselves and say, holy, holy, holy. And they've been doing this for eternity. And they're on fire, right? They're not praising God for his trust fund. Holy is God with all that money. They're not even praising God for his power, which would be exciting. God, I'd like some of your power. They're not praising God for his wisdom. They're not saying wisdom, 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 which is nice. What are they praising God for? His beauty. You're whole. You're beautiful. There's zero benefit to beauty, really. They're not doing a cost-benefit analysis of why they should praise God. They're just enraptured by his beauty and his greatness. And beauty moves us, does it not? It transforms us. Men, when you met your gal, at some point your friend said this to you, bro, you've changed. Oh, totally I've changed. Because I've seen something so beautiful, it's captured my heart and it's transformed me, right? That's beauty. Think about music. What's your favorite kind of music? Do you sit there with music and be like, what's the cost benefit analysis of music? What's my return on investment for this? CD or this music I'm buying. You don't do that ever, do you? What's the return on investment to these tickets to my favorite artist? No, why? Because it's beautiful and it moves you and you give yourself to it. The way that you bankrupt this covenant of works way that we interact with God is being raptured with his beauty. You keep like the seraphim, learning how good Jesus is, how good God is. And you say, holy, holy, holy. And it bankrupts this old way that you dealt with him and you get transformed. Your eyes are fixed on him and it changes you. And the second thing is belief, which is what this is all talking about, brings you joy. Ultimately what God wants from you and me is faith, is to believe him. And God deals very differently with unbelief than I think we do. If, someone's, if, if I say to somebody, hey, I bet I could jump over that thing or jump that span or jump that cliff and someone tells me, no way, you couldn't do that. What does that do to a man? Call 911 because I'm going to the ER room, right? Oh yeah? You know, because you we all have a glory starvation where we'll go prove ourselves. Okay, then I'm gonna show you I can do that. Dial 911 first, right? That's what it does to humans because we're all glory starved. God is not glory starved. He has nothing to prove. So when humans say to God, no, I don't believe you, God just says, okay, I'm out. The 10 spies said, now we don't believe you. What did God say? Okay, 40 years, you'll wander till you die, right? Jesus, twice in the gospels, Matthew 13, Mark 6, it says he could do no mighty work in that area, in Capernaum, in Nazareth, because of their unbelief. Jesus is like, okay, fine. You don't want great things to happen here? Okay. I got nothing to prove. I'm secure in who I am. I'm not worried about it. Okay. I'm out. Instead, 
Romans 15, 13 says this. It says, may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. That belief is the soil that peace and joy and hope blossom. That when you believe in God, when you simply take his promises, yes and amen in Jesus, you get joy and peace and hope. But Matt, they're not even, they haven't come to pass yet. It doesn't matter. It's like this. Here's how I think you get it. So I hung out with my son, Myron. He's five. And I hung with, out with him on Monday, my day off. And we're just kind of doing some stuff. And he, he'll, this is what he does. He'll say, hey, dad, can we go get a treat? And I know what that means. It means ice cream. Hey, dad, can we go get a treat? Now, imagine if I was to say this to Myron. If I said, Myron, we'll go, to, go get a treat if you keep my Torah. And from now till the end of the day, you do everything perfect. You do not make a mistake. It is 100%. If you're 100% perfect, we'll go get ice cream. What would Myron probably do? Probably hang his head and be like, oh, that's not gonna happen. I know me. Oh no, right? He'd be discouraged. But what if I said this? Hey, Myron, yes. If you hang out with me today, later on this afternoon, we'll run out and we'll go get some ice cream. What happens to Myron in that moment? He gets joy, doesn't he? He's like, yes! Has he tasted the ice cream yet? No. Is, he, is his belly full of that liquid love? Uh-uh. But just because he believes me that I'm gonna bring that to pass, he's got joy right in that moment. That's what the Bible says can happen to you and me. That there are these promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. And when we do Romans 15, verse 13, and believe, okay, God, I trust your promises for me. When we do that, we're like Myron. We get joy in the moment. Oh, wow. Peace in the moment. Oh, wow. It's future joy that you enjoy right now. And that can happen for us. And so what Galatians is just hammering, bang, 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 is simple. Believe Jesus. Be like the Matthew 8 leper that just comes and says, you gotta touch me. You have to plant your life in me. You have to heal me. You have to do that. And I'm falling down before you. And I want you to touch me and cleanse me and change me by faith. And that's what he does for us. That's Galatians. So Jesus, I know that there are people in here this evening who have real struggle, struggle with faith, with hope, struggle with sin, struggle against the enemy, struggle in marriage, struggle in parenting, struggle with despair. And all of us wonder, how do we move forward? How are we changed? May we hear the proclamation of Galatians that the just shall live by faith.
that the blessings of Abraham and the promise of the spirit, the power, the fruit grower, they come by faith. And I ask that we would be a group of people that continually this day, this week, this month, this year, when we're beset by sin or despair or whatever it is, that we would turn our eyes back on you. When the waves are big and the storm is crashing, when we firmly set our eyes upon you and in faith, may we pray and may we believe and may hope blossom and joy bloom and peace be evident in our lives because we trust you, that you are good and generous and that you have resources that we have no idea about, that your arm is not short, that it can heal and it can touch and it can move. May we be believers, I pray. And may you transform us by your power. May we be a people that continually abide in you, connected to you, receiving strength from you, not getting out on our own, not taking our eyes off you and sinking, but abiding, hoping, joyful, believing. And we need your help in even doing that. We need faith from you. We need your spirit to undergird us and empower us and anoint us with faith. So even tonight, Lord, I pray for each of us. May our faith quotient be full. And may we return that faith to you, believing in you, the God of all hope, who brings us joy and peace. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.